Live from the home of Sir Robert Chiltern, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Hello, Timothy. Hello, sir. How are you today? Um, not British enough. Well, of course, you're not wearing your cravat. I'm no, very I, dis- I, disappointed in I you. I did forget that. I wore my plaid. Maybe I'm. You are not quite dressed up enough, sir. No, I think I maybe I'll come back um, better tired. Yes, I, I think you should. Okay. Good day, sir. Good day. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. Live later. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the ranch. No, this is uh, welcome to Derail Trains of Thought. Yeah, uh, I, I just had about a body experience there. I'm uh, <laughs> sorry. I don't know what that was about. This is your premier storytelling podcast. For the creator and the consumer. This is Nick Hayden. And this is Timothy Deal. Welcome to uh, the house of Sir Robert Children. This is a place I've known uh, fairly, fairly well, although it feels more complete than I yeah, remember it, last time being here. It's a little better furnished. Yeah, a little better furnished. Hopefully nothing falls off the walls while we're here today. Yeah, that, that would be good. <laughs> um, but I, hey, I, it's been a while since I've been to just a nice kind of normal spot. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, oh, no. hopefully it stays nice and quiet for our podcast. Hopefully there's no drama, no theatrics. Yeah, exactly. So, um, how is life, Timothy? Life moves on. It is actually normalized a little bit more, which I'm not quite sure what normal is now. Uh, <laughs> the new normal. The new normal. For those of you who don't know, that I just uh, wrapped up. Um, well, a few weeks ago, wrapped up a play that I was in, An Ideal Husband. Um, originally by Oscar Wilde. Originally an Oscar Wilde. Or as apparently someone told me they overheard your brother saying it was it was a Gene Wilder play. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how you could mix that up in your head. But. <laughs> it's a little different. Yeah. But. Has Gene Wilder ever done Oscar Wilde? Uh, I have no idea. I, he I shouldn't. Anyway, so it is not a Gene Wilder play. It was an Oscar Wilde play. And it was, um, yeah, we enjoyed doing it. It was. Great I enjoyed to, watching it. I'm glad. I'm glad. It was great to exercise some creative muscles that I hadn't used in a while. I don't know if I said on the podcast before. I feel like I've, it's been a conversation point for me for a little while, but, <laughs> but it's true. It, it was really nice to be able to do some theater stuff again after a long absence from it. Mm-hmm. And speaking of theater, we are going to our story school. Theater has actually been on our story school topic list for a long time. I think since we had a list. I think so, <laughs> honestly. I think it's something that we've always wanted to talk about. But we knew we needed to get someone closer in the theater world. world. Thank you. I couldn't think of <laughs> Yes, because I, I did have I did graduate from Taylor University with a minor in theater. That was part of my degree. But I had not really been practicing, even when we started this podcast way back uh, nine years ago or something like that. Speak not of such years. <laughs> but even back then, I, it had been a while. I was doing, obviously, we started while I was in film school. Yeah. But it had been a while since I had done theater. And I had never really, I had been like into theater productions against my will at some point. So <laughs> I was not the expert to ask. <laughs> So being in An Ideal Husband was a perfect opportunity to coerce or convince the uh, director of that play, 
Lauren Nichols, who is also the artistic director of All for One Productions, who is the name of the theater troupe company ministry that um, put on An Ideal Husband and does a number of plays every year in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I've known Lauren for a long time, even before this play, way back in high school. She taught a theater class for homeschoolers. Oh, I did not know that. that. Yeah, that's where I got some of my feet wet. But So yeah, that was, like I said, a long time ago. And she'd wanted me to audition for an all-for-one play ever since, but I was like... It's Halloween for Wayne, and it's a couple nights a week. So the, the the stars had to align right, and I'm very happy that they finally did. And we have a special interview now with for you with Lauren Nichols. We met with her at the All for One uh, headquarters down in Fort Wayne, and hope you enjoy this interview. So we are here in the All for One Ministries lobby with artistic director Lauren Nichols. Hello, Lauren. Hello, Timothy. Thank you for coming on our podcast. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to do this. Uh, no problem. I'm happy to be here. First thing I wanted to kind of to introduce you to our audience, I wanted to ask you how long, well, how did you first get involved in theater and how long have you been doing this? That's a long question. Let me try to make it short. Um, we moved to Fort Wayne when I was about eight years old, and for the first time we had access to a lot of arts. We had lived in a small town in upstate New York before that, and my mother made a conscious choice to take me to as much of the performing arts as was appropriate. So from the time I was probably 12, I saw a lot of live theater and loved it. And had always I had always acted things out and got my friends together in an imagination play. So mom knew that I had a bit of that theatrical instinct, so she kind of pushed me into... Uh, Fort Wayne Youth Theater when I was in my teens. And as it happens, the first play that I was in my sophomore year of high school is where I met my husband. Um, that's an, another story in itself. But years later, um, I had opted not to get a theater degree. It didn't seem terribly practical. Got my degree in communications, which ultimately wasn't very practical either. <laughs> but that's okay. My husband and I moved to California. We ended up uh, as a part of a touring uh, gospel music and drama team, and that was very satisfying. I also wrote my husband a one-man play, and we discovered that although that had been very satisfying, we didn't know how to produce a play. We had always acted, and I was pretty comfortable with the writing aspect, but how do you, how do you mount a production? After our first son was born, we moved back to Fort Wayne, and suddenly we had many, many resources of people who were in theater, and several years down the road, then we started to hear some, about something called drama ministry, which had been an unfamiliar term really before. And we landed at First Missionary Church that had just started its own drama ministry. I met my dear friend Sharon Henderson, who had a vision for creating a parachurch organization that would do drama outside the walls of the church. And in the fall of 1992, sitting around our kitchen table, five of us decided to take a chance on that. And we thought we would go for about nine months. We had two or three scripts already. And suddenly people started calling us. And people who did not know that All for One was a thing. They just said, we know you do theater. We need a piece for Good Friday. Do you have something? And the stock answer for two years was, nope, but we'll write something. <laughs> but at the end of two years, we had a repertoire of like 10 pieces that we could bring up at fairly short notice. And we did a lot of touring where we were probably on the road at least once a month. 
two of us had young children, so it was challenging. We did that for a number of years and decided that that was enough. <laughs> uh, and we started to kick around the idea of doing something that would be more community theater-based. But we had never done published scripts. We only had done our own. So in 2000, we did our first full-length play called A Sentimental Journey at the Grand Wayne Center. Wildly successful. People said, yes, we want more of this. And we thought, well, that's wonderful. But it took years to write this. We can't obviously do original full-length plays on a regular basis. So then we started looking for material that we thought was appropriate for us. And at first we went with kind of the standard chestnuts of the theater, The Curious Savage, I Remember Mama, The Diary of Anne Frank, You Can't Take It With You. And we began to to develop a following. And finally we found a, a more permanent theatrical home when the new downtown library opened and it had a lovely um, auditorium in the basement. It wasn't exactly a theatrical stage, but it worked for our purposes and it put us in the heart of the community. And at that point, about 2007, we developed a season of four shows. And it was also about that time that we just stopped getting calls for touring. I think churches at that point had gotten comfortable doing their own thing and they didn't need to bring in an outside organization to do theater for them anymore. So the timing was right. I feel like you know, God had his hand in that. So yes. and I've been the artistic director officially since 07, but my husband and I are founding members. So we go back to 1992. Wow. That's quite a story. That is. And it does sound like God transitioned you from one thing to another. The, kind just of the right at the time. right time. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how do you go about picking the plays that all for one wants to do? I think I've largely been the one who's developed what I would consider my rubric mm-hmm. for for shows. We've discovered over time what the audience really responds well to. One of our four shows each season is an overtly sacred piece. One for the last eight or nine years has been an all ages show. And I'm not looking to compete with the youth theater. We're not looking for shows that are primarily have young people in the cast. I'm looking for a show, and it typically ends up being a literary classic, that will appeal literally to the whole family, mm-hmm. not just, this isn't the little kid's show. This is a show, though, that you can bring your young children to, and they'll get something out of it. Um, we've done The Wind in the Willows, we've done The Princess and the Goblin, Ransom of Red Chief. The next show we're doing, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, is based on a beautiful and fairly recent book by Kate DiCamillo, who's a wonderful children's novelist, yeah. one of my favorites. So there's that. There's a sacred piece, the all-ages piece. Uh, we do a piece at the holiday season um, in November, and we've begun to consistently do something which would maybe be considered a romantic comedy, or at least something that would have that kind of a theme in the February slot. Now, sometimes those categories overlap. And if I can get one show to do double duty, then I've got room to play with something else. Um, I have a great fondness for literary adaptation. We do a lot of plays that are based on books because I love books. (laughs) And and I I feel it was the one of our mandates is to educate. I have a passion for our audience going away better informed. Uh, I've been to plays that were based on historic events, and there was nothing in the program to tell you anything. You walked away scratching your head. I wish I knew more about this. So I'm very um, picky about our dramaturgy, and I, I just want people to feel enriched, not just entertained for the moment, but to walk away with something to think about. Follow-up question. You said that was, you feel like that's one of your mandates. What would you say maybe were some of the other 
thing that you well, our, all for one. Our, our mission statement is to impact our culture for God through the arts. And uh, our founding director, she always said the drama is the means but not the end of our ministry. So it's not just about putting on plays. It's about all of the relationships that we develop with the, the professionals at the Arts, at Arts United, with the actors and the production staff that we work with, because we don't work work with all Christians, but um, all our rehearsals, Timothy can tell you, all begin with prayer. And I'm very upfront about the reasons why I choose the show, even if it's not a show that has strong religious themes. There's usually something in the subtext that has appealed to me for very particular reasons because of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And I tell the cast that. I don't know of anyone who's ever not come back to work with us because of that. I, I know a number of folks who would not consider themselves church people, but they like to work with us for a variety of reasons. So I feel good about that. We always say that the shows we do are values-rich and thought-provoking and family-friendly and a little unusual. We try to avoid doing the plays that everybody always does. Mm. I've made a conscious choice now. Another artistic director might make a different choice, but I've made a choice not to do things like Our Town, The Miracle Worker, mm-hmm. some of the plays that everyone does All the high eventually. Do. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, granted, the first several shows we did were those plays as we were kind of getting our feet under us. But once we discovered that there were other plays that, oh, I've heard of that, or, oh, I've heard of that author, but I've never seen this on stage, I, I would far prefer to have that niche, that we do the things that are less familiar it's a bit of a gamble because this community doesn't always like to take risks on things they haven't seen before. I'm hoping that we're developing enough of a reputation that they trust us that what we do is going to be good regardless. Sure. You know? Well, and that was something I, I did want to ask you about because you've worked in Los Angeles. I know your husband, at least, has mm-hmm. worked in New York, I mm-hmm. believe. And so I was wondering about, yeah, what is your audience here in Fort Wayne like? And do you miss, I mean, Los Angeles and New York, those were kind of the big acting centers of the U.S. Do you ever miss not having those resources or no. do you prefer being in a smaller community? Um, my husband did a lot of off, off, off Broadway in New York. And he did one Shakespeare play out in L.A., In Los Angeles, everyone's just trying to get an agent and get into television or film. So they do plays in order to get agents to come and see them. Mm. And they literally pay for the privilege. Almost every acting company out there, you pay to be in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then you hope that it's something that an agent will come to see. And guess what? They only want to see Neil Simon. (laughs) So doing um, King Lear didn't help Dennis's career <laughs> at all. But it was a, it was a beautiful role. <laughs> I enjoyed watching. I think I went maybe six times to see that. <laughs> um, but no, it, it, coming back here, we really appreciate, we appreciate the, the diversity of theater, which has opened up over the last few years. Um, there is really something for everyone here. And there is, albeit a small one, there is an audience for everything. But I do find that by and large, if you want to, make money. If, if that's your, your bottom line, it needs to be a musical. And if it's a musical based on a movie, so much the better. <laughs> I'm not bitter. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's not our calling. So. Sure, sure. so I don't think we're ever going to be accused of being in it for the money. <laughs> but uh, so how has audiences responded to what's the kind of stories you've done? The audience that comes loves what we do. They're just 
very many of them. Um, I, yeah, that's all I can say. I, and I'm, I'm being encouraged by the board to find the things that we can still feel good about in terms of our integrity, but that will have a stronger audience appeal. Oddly enough, A Christmas Carol is our best attended show in the last couple of years. And people didn't care that it was some a different version. They just cared that it was A Christmas Carol and it was being done in November. And I guess I just have to swallow that and say, okay, um, I need to put that into the mix and, and look for the things that I think are still really quality script, but will have a bit more popular appeal. It won't be every show, but it's going to have to be two or three per season that we know will sell because we do need to increase our following. Sure. People are very, I think um, I can I should say in a good way, I think people are very cautious about how they use their money. So they're not going to just jump at everything. They're going to be very careful about, oh, do I really want to see all four of those shows or should I just get tickets to one? And honestly, people are so busy. We do better doing two weekends than when we were only doing one weekend. But if we could do three weekends, that might be even better because people now seem to need an awful lot of options because I know that's true for me. There are many shows that I'd like to see, and both weekends are completely booked, and I just don't have time to go. This, I don't have time to go to see nearly everything that I'd like to see. I know we've talked in the early days of the podcast some about artistic vision versus what the people actually want. So it's interesting to see. <laughs> That's an always an artistic dilemma, isn't it? Yeah. Even f- no matter what medium you're yeah. in and mm-hmm. whether you're an established person or a struggling freelance writer. Yep. So yeah. <laughs> understand that one. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> with everyone being busy and there's so many entertainment choices now. Yes, more and more. What does live theater bring that you know you think is different or special to the, to the I, mix? I've actually been thinking about this recently. Um, of course, film film is a visual medium, mm-hmm. plain and simple, and television and stage are much more auditory medium. Even though you've got something to look at, if you took the sound away, you would have no idea what was going on. We actually did that experiment in one of my college classes. We watched a bit of a TV show with the sound off, and then we listened to a film soundtrack. Totally unintelligible. <laughs> so, and that was very instructive to me at, at the time when I was, I was very young. As I've been thinking about stage and why stage is so special to me, it feels to me like the best of both worlds. I love books. Mm-hmm. I love to escape into my, my imagination. I'm not always a fan, as much of a fan of film because film spells everything out for you. It leaves nothing to the imagination. Sometimes really leaves nothing, <laughs> things that I would prefer yeah. to have left yeah, to the imagination. Yeah. But the stage kind of straddles that line. It, it, has, it puts faces and voices where you would have to create all of those things yourself. And that can sometimes be hard. I know there are some books I read that I think, I just cannot quite picture this character. I can't quite picture their setting. And yet, on stage, with very few exceptions, you you don't ever have that kind of hyper-realism. It's always a bit stylized, a bit surreal, if you will. And so you have to fill in a lot of the gaps with an ideal husband. We hope that we gave the audience enough in terms of the language and the costumes and the pieces of furniture that they could fill in the gaps in their mind and picture these beautiful homes. But we didn't try to create a mansion on yeah. stage. And there was a scene, and then there'd be a lapse of time, there'd be another scene. And just like in a book, you have to kind of have a sense of what happened in between. Some books translate better to the stage than others. 
I don't know whether you're familiar with the author E. Nesbitt. She was yes. an Edwardian children's writer. One of her best-known books is The, um, the Railway Children. They made it in a couple of successful movies. Well, as the name would imply, takes place around a railroad. <laughs> All the major events involve trains. Someone sent me a, uh, a script that they have been developing for the stage based on that book just doesn't work because mm. you've got all of this action happening off stage mm. and you you hear sound effects and they talk about it but it, it's very unsatisfying I thought, mm, no I don't think we can <laughs> don't think we can do this and I can't imagine a better way to do it yeah just because of the the logistics of that so I remember when we were in um, another interesting feature about theater that we used to talk about when I was minoring in it is the live experience. The fact that you're seeing real people in the flesh in front yes. of you and, and every and night's different. That's right. It's there's there's an ephemeral quality to theater. You you're seeing something that will never be repeated. Mm-hmm. It will never in just that way. There were things that I loved about every one of those performances of an ideal husband, but they didn't all happen the same night. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So interesting. You know, sometimes the actor can be in the moment and something will just strike them a different way that it had an after, which is funny to me, after all those rehearsals we, you put in, you can right. still find something different to react to. Yeah, a different, a different aha moment. Or even you know, the audience reaction will change the, the pace for a moment and that pace will actually turn out to be better. Yeah. Sometimes you think you're doing things exactly the same way and you get a very different audience response and I can't explain that. And Nick was asking me, I was like, well, every, the audience kind of becomes its own organism and you can't predict what they're going to be like any given night. That one Friday night showing where we had a super responsive audience, they were laughing at parts. I was like, was that actually funny? I, I, I don't know. I don't remember that being a laugh line. But. And then it's a shock the next night when you're back to an audience which is much more polite and they're laughing internally, but they're not guffawing. And yeah. so you have to adjust the, your timing again. So yeah, it is definitely, it's a, it's a wild beast theater. Mm-hmm. It's never mm-hmm. quite the same. What do you think is your favorite part of creating, producing? Is it the writing, the directing? I mean, I know you've told me you love directing. I love directing. I love the collaborative aspect of creating a show. After the casting is done, and especially after the blocking is out of the way, the blocking it being getting the actor's place. Okay, this is where you stand for this line. You move here, you exit here. The mechanics, I find the mechanics rather tedious, but it has to be done so that things can progress. And what would be largely fine, we would get the thing blocked, but but what was going on at the end of the day was really quite different. As the characters became more developed and as they um, became comfortable in their roles, some of those things shifted, and almost always for the better. But I, I love solving problems creatively, um, finding a, a staging solution that that solves several problems and that you know, creates just a really satisfying picture on the stage that creates a better experience for the audience. And I love it when the actors have bring those ideas to the table. I, I try very hard to create an atmosphere in rehearsal where everybody can contribute their ideas and we can play with them. And because I've always said we are collectively much, much smarter than any one of us individually. Yeah, and I really enjoyed that about the process. I mean, for me, I've mentioned elsewhere before that it was really nice to stretch some creative muscles in ways I hadn't. But it was also nice to remember that, you know, as an audience, your automatic assumption is, oh, they just came up with this off the top of their head. Most audiences don't understand all the, like, homework and the kind of exploration it takes to unearth these things. And it's not unlike even writing. When I've when I wrote my novella and other things, you you have an, an outline, a picture, but you really don't know what you're going to create until you get into the meat of it. 
Right. I, I, I know directors who spend a lot of time working on the script before rehearsals start, and I have done that at times, but I've never felt that it served me terribly well because until you get the cast in the room on their feet, you don't really know what you've got. Most of my best discoveries have happened in the rehearsal process. Related to that, the I think All for One has like a, a young scriptwriter. Young playwrights. Our Young Playwrights yeah. Festival is in its 11th year. So what tips do you give to people who are writing plays for the first time, young or old? Well, we have a few hard and fast rules. Uh, one of them is no narrator. Okay. You, that can be very effective if you are a seasoned playwright, but for kids it ends up being a cheat. <laughs> and so we're trying to get them to learn how to tell a story purely with dialogue. Mm -hmm. We tell them to limit the number of scenes, d different settings, uh, and the limit the number of characters. I think they've got, a, they've got a fairly low limit of how many characters can be in the play and how long the play can be. Mm -hmm. And then we just we encourage them to come up with an interesting problem and work it through to the solution and look at you know, how, do, how did the protagonist change in the course of the story? You know, is there a satisfying arc their beginning, middle, middle, and end to the story. We show them what the, the rubric is that the judges are going to use, yeah. and um, hopefully they pay attention. I'm not always convinced that they've paid any attention at all. But uh, but we, we get some decent scripts, and this year we're doing something new, which I think is a great improvement and will result in a better experience both for the playwrights and for the audience at our gala. And that is we offered all of our playwrights the opportunity to pre-submit a month in advance and several of us just gave them feedback said okay this is what I see that's strong this doesn't make so much sense to me have you ever considered doing this and some of them took that criticism and did some rewriting now that we have our six winning plays there should have been eight but there were no entrings in the kindergarten to second grade category which is unusual um, so we have two winning plays for each of the other categories up through 12th grade my understanding is that as the director and the actors are working with the script, they may make some additional suggestions for rewrites to the playwright based on their observations. So I think that there'll be a, gr a much stronger learning process mm -hmm. for the playwright because I would hate to think that our young people walk away with, well, I got first place, it must have been a great play, but nobody ever asked them to rewrite anything. And you know, yes. <laughs> you both know that writing is rewriting. I mean, if one thing was pounded into my head in college, that was it. When I taught writing, I'm like, it's all about rewriting. And that's, your first draft is never good. No. <laughs> it just, yeah, there might be nice moments oh, in yeah. it, but. You gotta get it out, but. Yeah, you've gotta just get something on paper that you can react to. And I, I used to really dislike the editing and the refining process. Now I find that very enjoyable. But honestly, I'd far rather edit someone else's work. I'm much yeah. more passionate about helping someone else mm -hmm. reach their creative goal than in writing my own piece anymore. Well, just to switch gears here a little bit, I, one thing I was wondering, obviously, if anyone's in Fort Wayne and they really wanted to get a better appreciation of theater and um, or better repertoire of knowledge about mm -hmm. it, they should just go to come to All for One Place. Well, obviously. <laughs> Obviously, but if they if they aren't in Fort Wayne, how how would you recommend someone get better read into that? I mean, and like you said, going to plays can huh. be time. Uh, it can be expensive. Expensive, it, and yeah. for, depending where you live, you might have to travel to great a distance. There are a number of 
excellent filmed versions of stage plays. I think a, a good local library might be a place to start. Ask them to show you the section of the um, audiovisual department that has DVDs of plays. I watched a lot of plays on video uh, when I was growing up. PBS and Great Performances both used to film things. There's still, um, there was a company called, I want to say Broadway Archives, that put together videos or now DVDs of shows that had been filmed, but they were stage plays. I know Broadway HD is the thing I see promoted all the time now. It seems like, like it's mostly musicals, and they're specifically up from Broadway. But there's an awful lot of good regional theater that has been filmed over the years. You just you have to hunt a little bit more for it. But I would I'd start there, and I'd also just read plays. Give us just a couple of your favorite plays that most people don't know about. Cyrano de Bergerac, one of my all-time favorites. Um, golly. One of my favorites is one that we did. It's called American Primitive. Uh, it was written by William Gibson, who wrote The Miracle Worker. But uh, American Primitive is based on the writings of John and Abigail Adams. In fact, 90% of the script is their actual writings. But they're speaking from different parts of the stage, and they, they each have kind of a little... Uh, she has three female kind of supporters who play a number of different roles, and he has three male supporters who are mainly members of Congress, and uh, they interact with him, but they're mainly writing to one another, and they're always writing at cross-purposes because of the delay in getting mail from Braintree to Philadelphia. It's it's really a heartbreaking story of a marriage of, of two brilliant minds and people who were deeply in love and really wanted to be together, but because he was so passionate about being in on the ground floor of forming this new nation, um, they were apart for years. Something tragic would happen to one of them, and the other one wouldn't hear about it for months. And it's a beautiful play, and it actually has some lovely light moments. But uh, it was that was a real treat to stage, and it's still one of my favorite plays we've ever done. Great. Well, to kind of wrap this up, uh, what can we expect next from All for One? I know you've got uh, the next play coming up in Edward April. Edward Tulane is, is coming up at the end of April, and then uh, next season will be announced on April 5th. <laughs> I'm, I'm not at liberty to announce it ahead of time. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> I was just trying to see if I can get a... Sorry. <laughs> get an exclusive. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, any final words you want to say to any aspiring playwrights or um, actors out there? You know, good storytelling is good storytelling. We all want to show more than we tell. We want to, to create vivid characters. I think for playwriting, the challenge is that it needs to be done with dialogue as opposed to description. But one thing that I think is useful is to take a familiar story, take a, even a children's story or a Bible story that, that you're fond of, and find a creative way to tell it only with dialogue. And then have your friends come over and read it out loud and see how it sounds. Just like when you're writing dialogue in a novel, mm -hmm. reading, um, having that auditory component is crucial. You, stage is a spoken medium, and you have to read the lines out loud to make sure that they sound the way you want them to. Nick, you've had some experience writing plays that I'm trying to <laughs> with uh, some really unusual takes on biblical stories. Yes, that's true. Well, I don't know. I've done one with like time travel, going back to Bible times. Um, actually, my favorite, most serious play was called Saturday, and it's Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and the disciples basically just sitting around wan wondering, what's the use now? 
I'm very fond of that one. That's probably my my most official play. <laughs> I mean, normally writing for middle schoolers, and they're usually a little more sure silly. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, like I'm more of a novel writer, and so I do a lot of dialogue and monologues or sort of stuff in my novels, anyways. But it's interesting trying to learn how to do it in a way that's probably a little more natural than some of my some of the way that I write books. And so yeah, I, I because agree with spoken you. is always it's going to feel a little bit different. It does, it does, yeah. And I'm always like, and then they always want to change the lines too. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. I'm curious, how much freedom do you feel with someone else's script? Copyright agreements do not permit us to change anything. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I'm willing okay. to say. <laughs> well, we, for an ideal husband. Well, ideal husband is in public domain. Public domain. Yes. So we, public we, domain is my friend. <laughs> we tweet quite a bit of that. Yes. I was thinking more in that line, honestly, just because I knew he had talked about cutting lots of lines out. And then, you know, people do all kinds of things with Shakespeare. Yes. Yes, they do. They do. They add things and uh, they obviously all kinds of different historic contexts. Yeah. Um, the big thing with Ideal Husband was cutting it for length and taking out a lot of references that would strike our audience today as very sexist. Mm. Um, and some of the, co- the humor that was probably topical at the time but or funny for the culture, but no, we wouldn't understand it now. So we so got a lot of those kinds of references. And the, the big thing that we did, and I mentioned the dramaturgy, was that uh, we allowed our leading actress to rewrite one of her final speeches so that um, it was it was clear that we were recognizing that she was also imperfect. Mm-hmm. And I I think it was satisfying for her. I found it very satisfying for me mm-hmm. um, to be able to, to do that, to have that kind of freedom. I really enjoy being the company that can do a world premiere. We've done eight world premieres, wow. which I is I know it's a record in Fort Wayne. Most mm-hmm. companies are not brave enough to try that, but we've worked with five playwrights locally, at least, and um, that's something I especially love. And in probably almost every case, I nurtured that project for about two years before it ever hit the stage. Playwriting, like novel writing, I'm sure, is kind of a lonely business. Mm-hmm. You sit by yourself and you wonder... <laughs> Is anyone else ever going to read this? And for a playwright, that's especially alarming because if it only exists on paper, it's almost as though it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like I've always had this unique benefit as a playwright. I've got my own company. (laughs) I know that I can get somebody to at least read this out loud. And chances are we're going to to put it on. And we've done a number of my plays. But when other people have come to me and said, I've got this play, I said, well, let me read it. And fortunately, we've found some really lovely works, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to more. In fact, now I'm starting to get plays sent to me from other parts of the country. Mm. I've, at least three other playwrights recently have sent me their work to consider. And that's exciting. It opens up some new yeah. possibilities for us. I'd like just to maintain the reputation of being a company that's willing to nurture a new voice. Great. Thank you again for taking some time to talk with us. This has You're been a welcome. lot of fun. We've oh, won- it's a pleasure to talk about theater. <laughs> <laughs> and we wanted to do it on the podcast for a long time. A long so, time. So thanks again. Right. You're welcome. All right. And that was our interview with Lauren Nichols. I really enjoyed talking to her. I had not ever had a chance to sit down and talk to her, really. You have known her, for, especially in the last couple of months. The last, especially the last couple of months. And it was, yes, it was really fun. I shouldn't make notes of, she did give me one correction about our last episode, Nick. What was that? Our last story school, when he talked about monologues. She said she kept waiting for us to mention that 
when a, a Shakespearean character talks by himself on an empty stage, that is technically called a soliloquy. I didn't know that. For some reason, I, it was in my head to talk about, but I never mentioned it. Yeah, I, I, I think we at least should have known that and probably did. But yeah, we were so focused on the term monologue that I never brought that one up. So point taken. We thank you for that <laughs> corrective feedback, Lauren. <laughs> but yeah, I hope that gives you some inspiration for maybe... Uh, expanding your theater repertoire or knowledge repertoire. And I, I, I'm just really impressed with the sort of ministry that well, All for One does. I think it's a very interesting, kind of unique mission. Yeah, especially, I think, in terms of like the small community kind of ministry. I, mm-hmm. think, I think Fort Wayne is a great place to do that. So much, I think, people of our generation get caught up in the online scene nowadays and everything. You have to market to a big audience, but there's a lot of people in your local hometown that need your gifts as much as anyone. I completely agree. I think that's. I think we should do that in a story school at some point. Some point, uh, we need to. I think we probably have some uh, some uh, soul searching of our own that we need to do there to figure. Because like, it's one <laughs> of these things I think is a neat idea. And I'm glad we were able to talk to someone who does that. Yeah. But I don't know a whole lot about it myself. So that's true. All right. Well, then let's go to our first soundtrack. Okay, for those of you who are new to our podcast, Soundtrack is kind of our interlude segment where we play some music, usually from the website Overclocked Remix, because they have a lot of great music available for free. So therefore, we're mostly doing video game remixes. Man, yeah, I've been listening to the site since... Somewhere, somewhere like when it started. And has often been an inspiration for your own storytelling, exactly. hasn't it? But my soundtrack choice for today is a remix from video game, but is not from Overclocked Remix. Oh. Um, because I really wanted to pick something from Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. Why that one? Well, because when you go into a battle in that game, it suddenly transitions into the battle takes place on a stage. Okay. And you have an audience watching you. And if you do really well, they'll cheer and you get extra like bonuses or something. And if you're not doing Doing very well, they may the audience may leave or may even throw saddest damaging things on you. Oh, nice! So it plays with kind of the play convention there a little bit. But this is a remix from the Exonauts Fortress uh, level. It is from a YouTuber called Game and Sound. I don't have an actual name, but that's the name of his YouTube channel, and I think it's pretty catchy. So I hope you enjoy.
that was peppy and energetic. I really, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was a fun find. Good work, Tim. Oh, uh, thanks. Achievement unlocked. <laughs> All right. So uh, next, we will do a very special for Tim. Our take on tales. All right, Tim, I think you have been waiting for nine years or something for this take on Tales. <laughs> I, I can wait a little bit longer, though, because I, like, I feel like I should let you go first oh, here, okay. just so I have time to really bleh. Okay, so, so you get no, no holds barred, you don't feel like anyone's waiting. Exactly. Except, yeah. Okay. Except you. <laughs> okay, except me. No, I'm excited. So, if you don't know, Tim's going to be talking about Kingdom Hearts 3. <laughs> so, for my take on Tales... I don't have a lot of books right now. We just did that in January. Mm-hmm. And I haven't watched anything that I'm like, ooh, I need to talk about. So I thought we'd talk about some podcasts. Oh. We've been name-dropping podcasts for quite a while Since recently. We, recent, yeah, in the last few months, we've really gotten really into it. And having talked to uh, Laura Finch on our... Um, I think that was episode 91. 91 about audio and news writing. Um, and we were talking about how... It's still storytelling, even these news sort of programs, you know, got still got have a character and an obstacle and something to get around, and you have to st- structure your quotes around it. There are at least three podcasts I listen to regularly that I think are very good at telling stories, and a lot of them nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Probably the first one, and Tim lists, I got Tim, I think I got you listening to this one, didn't I? Yeah, right? uh, this, is the, this is one I'm subscribed to now. So, um, 99% Invisible. I think we have talked about it on the podcast. We have. We've mentioned it at least, at least yeah. yeah. Is a fascinating podcast. It's technically a podcast about design, and that sounds boring. But this sh- this uh, this podcast is never boring. Never. It is about everything. I like. Um, <laughs> it's not just when you say design. You don't mean like graphical design no, or just like how the world works in some ways. Like they had one about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier recently, and the soldier that we know who's in there from Vietnam. Well, not anymore. Well, he's not in there anymore. We know who but, he is. But there was a guy that yeah. they figured out who he was, so they had to take him out. There's ones about the you know the history of color. There's ones about this lady who was like a superstar because she was a model of like every marble statue in New York City. The one about the uh, giant effigy thing that they did in oh, it, was it New Mexico, Arizona? Yes. Yeah. Um. So, so oh, Brosa. So Brosa. I don't remember the name of it now. Uh, that one is hilarious. Um, tunnels under the border. I mean, just. Anything you can think of, they've they've tackled at some point, but it's they tell it in a very the interrobang, the interrobang, which is wonderful. Um, raccoons and trash cans in Canada, um, <laughs> but they do a very good job of just finding these interesting stories about how kind of life interacts with design, art, and find just really compelling stories about Sears used to sell homes in their magazine and they would ship them to you. And you put, put them together. Or do you remember that one story about the the contest about who could stay on a billboard? And yes. some people like camped out for like a like year. Three people who had lived on a billboard for this contest for I don't even remember what the contest my, was for. My now. son did a science fair project based on one. There are many stories of um, apparently the in World War Two the I think the British were thinking about trying to make a ice battleship made of ice. I don't remember that one. <laughs> I missed that one. That's fascinating. And it was it was wonderful because you make it a pyrite, which is ice water mixed with sawdust. It makes it super strong, so like torpedoes would like bounce off of it. But they were trying to find a way to keep it refrigerated. And there's there's the remnants of it of a test version at the bottom of a lake in Canada. But there's not <laughs> much left, obviously, because it was made of ice. Yeah. But there were like the refrigeration coils and stuff. Wow. It was cool. So, anyways, 
And Roman Mars is the host, though he has a lot of other people who make, put stories together. But it's, it's just intriguing stories, well told, about things you never knew you wanted to know about. <laughs> I've convinced most of my family to listen to it at this point. It is easily one of the most consistently great podcasts I listen to of that, of that type. Mm-hmm. They often, 99% Invisible, often like have episodes from other podcasts, kind of just, they like to spread the love. And they played one from the Memory Palace, and it was okay, but I'm like, I'll go look at this Memory Palace thing. This podcast is a, it's more traditional storytelling in the sense that the guy, I think he's a historian, but he always takes moments in history, or characters in history, and he kind of tells their story in about 10 minutes. They're real short. Sometimes they're like three minutes, but, and sometimes 15, but about 10. And he tells them in a very poetic, personal manner. A recent one was about this guy who loved Shakespeare so much that there was all these birds mentioned Shakespeare. So he wanted to bring birds from Europe that didn't exist in America that were Shakespeare. And he, he brought these starlings over. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes they wouldn't survive, or, uh, different bird types. So starlings are mentioned once in Shakespeare. And he brought 60 of them over and let them loose. And basically since then, they've like just taken over and become this massively invasive species. And they have huge flocks here in North America. Basically, because this guy likes Shakespeare. Wow. Um, but this, there's just so that's a true story. Yeah, all everything he says is a true story. Oh, okay. Uh, I just listened to one. I've been listening to the backlog about kind of the aftermath of the Donner Party. Like both the guy accused of eating the Donners. Wait, what? Uh, what are you? You, talk- know, you ever heard of the Donner Party? Like they're stuck in the past, and like there's a, some guys accused of cannibalism because they got stuck in the past during winter. No, I'm you ever heard of that? No, oh. I've never heard of this. Oh, okay. But anyways, it was like the aftermath of the one of the girls who was only like four at the time, but her parents died in the past, and this guy who was accused of eating the parents. Um, okay. And it's kind of their lives after the fact. And apparently, like he said, he was framed into it because like there was money involved in a treasure and stuff. But apparently, true story, or at least a version of the true story. But not only are these stories interesting, the guy, Nate DeMeo is the host's name. I think that's how you say it. Tells in a very poetic way like he's a very good writer Mm. and he spends a lot you can tell he spends a lot of time telling it in a very personal very impacting way there was a story about this genius kid he had translated this latin book at age four i mean it had six different moments from his life and just i i I hook my sister on with that one because she loves history i'm like listen to this one now she's listening to (laughs) and they're nice because they're only like 10 minutes but i think for for just like a a moment of very interesting, very personal history. The Memory Palace is fascinating. I mean, you know, he, he, he particularly gravitates towards things that are lost or things that were unknown or things that are kind of sometimes the people who are forgotten in history. Uh-huh. You intrigued me, but with uh, talking about him being a very kind of poetic, mm-hmm. good writer, because like I'm interested in theory, but I've never really sought out a lot of people who pursue the oral tradition of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I, that sounds like, in a way, that podcasting is or radio talk, writing for radio is kind of a n- new version of that. And I, when you're writing to be for something to be read out loud or mm-hmm. you know to be heard. And I think at least my impression of it that he he spends a lot of time making that work, and because he must, I think he's a historian because you can tell he knows all this data, and then he tries to make it into a personal story. Hmm. Growing up on a level of like, I really enjoy this thing. It doesn't come out regularly, but I think just because. It's that sort of show. You, he, he gets the idea and he has to form it into what, what a Memory Palace episode is like. Okay. Which is, like, sometimes you'll have, like, a one time there was a whole kind of praise of the washing machine. <laughs> um, because talk about history and how it changed the work for women and all uh, this other stuff. So is he even less frequent than we are? 
I have not actually watched it. I I've been listening to a lot back one, so I don't oh, actually know. Okay. But I think it's like about every two weeks, probably. Okay. Okay. For like a 10, 10 15 minute episode. Okay. So I really enjoy that. And then my third one, my last one, will be the twenty thousand hertz. Twenty thousand hertz, which is a sound podcast. So it just tells stories of sounds. There was an episode of why restaurants are so loud. <laughs> there was one about silent, like absolute silence, going to one of those chambers where there's like no sound at all. This one's been up and coming. But like I like sound, I've always been interested in it, and it's it's put together very well. They did one recently, on, well, that ninety nine percent invisible kind of promoted about cartoon sounds. Mm-hmm. That was fun, which was a lot of fun. They did one about football direction, like you know all the commands they give and how they how technology changed so that the coach could give the plays, and mm-hmm. it was it was pretty fascinating stuff. The episode they played on 99% Invisible, it felt pretty similar to that style. Would you say it's closer to the 99% Invisible it is. style? It than is. The... I, I would not be surprised if they were like, we want to be a sound version 99% Invisible. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I mean, 99% Invisible and 20,000 Hertz are very kind of... Um, NPR-ish? Investigative reporting, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they tell a good story, but yeah. it is reporting. Right. And the Memory Palace is storytelling. Interesting. In the more more pristine sense even though it's uh, it's also it's not true fiction. stories yeah but, yeah but he he certainly molds it into a different storytelling style. interesting okay yeah. so those are my three kind of podcasts that i've been really enjoying i mean got other ones that are more news worldview related but these are kind of your my story ones nice Very all right nice. tim so those are if you get sick while you're longing for another one of ours <laughs> um you yes. can you There's can use one of those that's right all right, so we promised I'd have a nice, lengthy Kingdom Hearts 3 discussion here. Buggle um, up, everyone. <laughs> for If those of you who, who aren't into video games or don't know anything about this, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why we like to do our Take of Tales is to let you know about something that's going on. So hopefully this will at least, I, I will try to make this entertaining for you, even if you don't know anything about the Kingdom Hearts franchise or video games of- in general. Of media. Exactly. And to give you kind of a bird's eye picture, when I, when I say I'm a Kingdom Hearts fan, what does that mean? Well, at the very basics, it's Kingdom Hearts is a series about anime kids fighting alongside Disney characters, taking out colorful, cartoony monsters. That's that's the basic, you know, kind of... Which doesn't really bookmark. capture some of the crazy plot stuff. No, it doesn't. So I, I actually made a list of, of certain themes, because Kingdom Hearts 3, which is just came out at the end of January, is the technically the 10th game of the franchise. <laughs> yes, Kingdom Hearts 3 is yes, number 10. That sounds about right. <laughs> I made actually made a list of some of the various themes that you could find in the series, just to give you kind of a blueprint picture of why this franchise is so colorful, to put it mildly, um, and I've actually grouped these by categories. So first, I've I've called what I'm what I'm calling the Disney themes, which feels very fitting. These are like kind of your Disney wishy washy kind of yeah. things, like like Once Upon a Time sort of level. Yeah, kind of very Once Upon a Time sort of level. Like my friends are my power. That's a common theme in Kingdom Hearts. Um, and there's truth to the name. There's a lot of heart issues, like follow your heart and the importance of having a strong heart, and you gotta believe. And then conflicts of light versus dark. Although that's an idea that you could see spread throughout the rest of these 
theme headings. Mm-hmm. So then I went to, I've got what I'm calling speculative fiction themes. And some of these things might be themes that you would see that are from real life, but these are like the genre ideas, yeah. things like that. So obviously multiple worlds, that's a big deal in Kingdom Hearts. Going to each Disney world that they visit is kind of a different world technically, but at the same time, Kingdom Hearts has also sometimes explored the idea of alternate dimensions. Mm-hmm. Pocket worlds are kind of a big thing. It, like Interesting. A world inside a world, and that could be like the most common in Kingdom Hearts is actually a form of virtual reality, which they call datascapes. There's, okay. there's actually multiple games, multiple instances where there's a world that's entirely di- digital. Although I'm not sure if that's different from what Tron does. Oh, yeah. Tron is a world inside a computer. I don't know if that's different because there's also a, a, at least a couple worlds that take place in books. Okay. Um, like Winnie the Pooh's yeah. world is in a book that's in another world. And so that world can go from, is actually introduced in one world and then and this game you've encountered. So it's, yeah. 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 Pocket world. Um, and if you go into the madness that is recoded, you have worlds within the heart within worlds it, wow. it gets very inceptiony in that game it's kind of <laughs> nuts and dreams dreams can be a world unto themselves okay there's one game where worlds themselves are falling asleep and are in their own dream state so whatever anyway so that's one idea then if we've got like things like clones doppelgangers artificial people that wound up being a big thing in kingdom hearts 3 and you've got Things that are because of the Disney worlds they visit. Yeah. These are like your smash up sorts of ideas robots, pirates, aliens, fairy tales, mm-hmm. mad scientists, um, time travel, yeah. body possession, amnesia, <laughs> prophecies, monsters, obviously, with all the heartless and nobodies and all the things you fight. There's a huge bestiary. And you've got philosophical themes like the cosmology how did this world come to be? There's ideas of existence versus non-existence, questioning our place in the in the world. Can we trust our own memories? Destiny versus free will. Group dynamics. What causes conflict? The folly of reckless academics and science. The folly and the wisdom of youth. Uh, yin-yang philosophy. Racism, redemption, heroism, self-sacrifice, the corruptibility of power, death, afterlife. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. No, no, he's not. I don't even know that much. He's not exaggerating. Like you start this game thinking, oh, this will be a fun Disney cartoony anime kind of thing, and it is. But you don't have to play very far to like. Oh man, these are some interesting themes and ideas that they're playing around you with here. Doesn't mean they necessarily use them all well. Yeah, but they are there, and you can easily see why why young people can gravitate towards it because it's colorful and fun and all that stuff but it has that hint of deeper ideas that, that they really like that especially really, when they're young yes exactly so there's there's a lot of substance there beyond the um, or at least attempted substance now do you think do you think some of it is like legit like you could have actual discussions on substance it depends i mean i went through a whole list of things yeah there I mean, are certain scenes there that i would i would say yeah i could i, I mean it'd probably be easier you'd probably have a deeper conversation with a 12 year old than like than certain people who are in academics though I don't know maybe there's someone who has written an entire thesis about the folly of reckless academics in Kingdom Hearts because <laughs> there are some some scientists that like like I'm such an idiot for having tried to explore all this stuff and you yeah. know kind of mad scientist kinds of vibes there it's possible but there are other there are other things that like they're playing with ideas that are a little big for their britches I yeah. will admit at times 
So with all that said, what is Kingdom Hearts 3 about? Yeah. This is a game that basically a lot of the side games have been building towards for a long time, where Sora is needing to rescue a number of people that were introduced. Their stories were explored in past games that have been lost for various reasons. And so that's kind of the main goal that they're setting out, partly just to rescue them and partly also because the main villain of the series, uh, who has been impacting all the events one way or the other ever since the very first game is uh, if, if they don't get there uh, he's trying to fulfill a prophecy about having 13 seekers of darkness and seven warriors of light yeah. clash and because he wants to see what happens when that happens and so and if he if they don't get their warriors and he's going to just wind up threatening more innocent people and so basically they're they're kind of backed into a corner to do this so the upside of the story is that the the format got to take a kind of a different feel than it's taken before because now we've got all the stuff built up to it and Sora knows where his best friends are. He knows where certain allies are and they just have to try to figure out the pieces. So in that sense, it's kind of neat. It's kind of different, something, a new take on the thing. The downside is that there's a lot that you know. The, the characters spend a lot of time figuring things out that the Kingdom Hearts fan base already knows. Oh, because Because, yeah. you know, you just have to unwind these things. And then the second thing is that you wind up knowing that, okay, the end of the game is really where all this stuff that we've been building for is going to take place. The so first two-thirds is basically just... Just get through the Disney worlds, essentially. And, and they do an interesting... They certainly do interesting things with the Disney worlds, but it's it's a little unfortunate that it's kind of this long waiting period till you get to the to some of the meteor stuff. Yeah. But I will say, the thing that Kingdom Hearts Three probably does best at is the look of everything. This game is gorgeous. The previous games have up to this point, with the exception of the mobile game, the one for smartphones, have all had have worked on basically a, a PlayStation Two level of graphics mm -hmm. that they've updated to they've done some hd remakes but basically kept in, keeping the same models and look of everything so this one for ps playstation 4 is the first one that is really a new generation yeah for the franchise and they knocked it out of the park and looks department yeah i mean it was well worth the wait to be able to play like i showed you some of the toy story world and mm -hmm. it, it looks like you're playing a toy story movie you look like you're in a lot of these environments from Disney movies, especially since most of them are now from CG movies, yeah, which is kind of you know in the name of the game nowadays. But there's a lot of gorgeous animations. The worlds are fun to explore. They did a ton of cutscenes, so if you enjoy the the story, you're definitely in for a treat. Just for uh, there's certainly, I mean, that's one of the things I realize why video games nowadays are are so expensive and take so long to come out because. You're making a really long movie, essentially. When yeah. you think about how long it takes to put out a regular animated movie. Mm -hmm. And granted, sometimes certain scenes may not be quite up to the same like pristine quality that like a Pixar animated movie will look like nowadays. But still, it's a lot of animation, work. a lot of work to do. And overall, the Disney worlds were pretty well handled. I think, honestly, if I was a, a fan of Frozen, I feel like the Arendelle world might be the one I, I'd be most disappointed with. Um, because you really just spend that one exploring a mountainside a lot, and you don't really get to spend a lot of time with Anna and Elsa. Okay. I have a feeling that's the world that they w had the most limitations on what they could do. Just probably with the second movie coming out. Probably with the second movie coming out and certain things that they wanted, to, the Disney animators wanted to do. And it's like, no, you can't can't explore the Ice Palace. Sorry. So I don't know. That's just a theory. But overall, the, like I said, the worlds were a lot of fun. The other downside I, w I would say about 
Kingdom Hearts 5, we've said it's it's complicated in some ways and messy, which yeah. is unfortunately the the opposite of, of simple and clean. Simple and clean, one of their most famous songs. So and the other and why I say it's messy is not just because of all the ideas going around, but also sometimes the execution is not quite perfect. And part of that I realized this time too, how much of that is sort of a cultural thing. I realized for the first time this time just how much Kingdom Hearts is a mesh of Western and Japanese uh, okay. culture concept things. Um, part of that is because it's originally all animated more in Japanese, so you've got kind of the anime dub thing going on, where the voice actors are great, but because they have to match their performance to the animation that's already oh, done, yeah. every once in a while, there most of the time it's great, every once in a while there's a spot of dialogue that the timing is just a little weird, um, just a little odd. And then there's just there's other things that like, I think a Western audience would be like, mm, do a little more there. You want a little more, as imaginative as Japanese creators are, there's still a little bit more of that reserve space, especially with like romantic subplots. Oh, yeah. Um, now, for like Disney romantic stuff, you don't have that problem because they're actually very, especially in this game, they were very careful about wanting to emulate the Disney movies as much as possible, sometimes yeah. to the point of really recreating entire scenes. Yeah. So you don't feel necessarily like you're missing on that aspect but there'll be times with the actual kingdom hearts characters that you'll be like no go a little bit more emotive or yeah. something and they're you know they hold back a little bit because japanese creators yeah that said there's the ending of the game and i'm not going to go into any spoiler territory here but the ending of the game there were times that were extremely emotional and extremely well paid off things that the fans have wanted to see for a long time and I will be man enough to admit that I cried several times during the last ending of the, of the game. That's not to say that even the end of the game is perfect. Honestly, I would say the moments that did work really well also made some of the moments that just didn't quite connect with me kind of frustrating because mm. it was like, mm, that was awkward. That was weird. Why you, Tetsu Nomura, who's the director of this, why did you have to do it in such a, such a weird way as that? And, you know, so it's, so it's a bit uneven. Probably if you look online, the biggest complaint you will see about Kingdom Hearts 3 is that the gameplay was way too easy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into combat because this is a story podcast, not really a gaming podcast. I would agree. I've, I've played on standard mode because that's just the mode I always play on first. Yeah. I, I don't usually go for like the super hard difficulty mode, um, which is called critical. I will usually play on proud mode. And that's what I had been playing when I recently did my playthrough of yeah. all the Kingdom Hearts games on proud mode. So going back to standard, this game was a little a little bit of a letdown because it was almost like I, I felt like I didn't even have to heal all that often. Yeah. But then the other thing that people the, almost everyone has something about the story, even as much as people will enjoy certain parts of it, pretty much everyone will have something about the story that they were a little unsatisfied with. Mm. And somewhere in the very ending I will admit that there was a moment that did have an emotional impact but it was one of hurt <laughs> and it made me very upset for a while. And it took me like, while the end credits were rolling, I have, I was just this roller coaster of emotions, like <laughs> trying to process, okay, what do I do? What do I think about all, all the stuff that just happened? Yeah. That I just, that I just saw. Now, do you think the, the, the kind of uneven ending is because they had so many crazy things going, there's no good way to wrap them all up or is it just this, what they were going to do and, uh, it's people a, just have different expectations. Well, there will be some people that will have different expectations. I, I will say I did not expect 
exactly everything. They they build this as the end of the Dark Seeker saga, a big arc of the Kingdom Hearts, and it was. They yeah. did they did mostly wrap up the, the main, last ten games. Yeah, the last ten games. They did mostly wrap up the main villains story and a lot of the other plot lines that had been going on. They did wrap up a lot. They didn't wrap up everything, particularly things that are still ongoing with the mobile game, which is kind of what I expected because the smartphone mobile game takes place like centuries before the rest of the series. And so there's plenty of mysteries going on there. And one of the epilogues had something to do with that. So I I wasn't expecting them to wrap up everything, but there was certainly there was a large amount of hype and as great as certain things were, some I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if it would have been nice if some of that was were sprinkled throughout the rest of the game rather than all being towards the end. I don't know how you would have balanced it out though exactly. I mean, one of the neat things about the way they did the story was that, like I said, in between every Disney World, you got a little bit of peek in what what was going on in the the Kingdom Hearts story, not yeah. the, the Disney character story. So it was nice to kind of touch base on that, but in some ways, you, it felt like you could have brought certain characters in a little earlier okay. than they did or certain characters could have done a lot more than they did. My hope is when they do a DLC, I would love to see them do like some sort of arena where you get to pick which keyblade wielder you want to be. Okay, yeah. Because there's a couple moments where you get to play as someone other than Sora, but it's just very briefly and there's a lot more that you didn't get to play with. And I think it would be f- super fun to be able to switch them out. I don't know if they'll do something like that. Toward the end of the year is when we're supposed to get our paid DLC. Now, but. are you far enough apart uh, away from it that you can tell me which Kingdom Hearts is the best? I'm not quite. From, from a story perspective? I don't think I'm quite there yet. I will say I do think Kingdom Hearts 3 is probably in my top three of Kingdom Hearts games. Okay. I don't, I wouldn't say where uh, right now. I'm not quite f- Now you're saying yet. just all around or story-wise? I would say all around. Okay. Just even story uh, It'd be really hard to say story-wise. Okay. Because it's like, it's one big hole. And honestly, usually the stronger a story in a game is, the stronger I feel about a game anyway. That makes sense. So I'd say, overall, there are a lot of very satisfying story elements in it. The fact that it, you know, the fact that it wasn't perfect is almost inevitable in some ways. At this point, yeah. Yeah, because Kingdom Hearts fans have like years in between games to theorize about what they would like to see happen and to make fan art and things that you'd like to see. But what the director wants to do can be kind of different. I mean, like the end of Lost. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's good, totally understandable. So if we don't usually rate things on this podcast, yeah. but I was thinking about it, and if I was to rate this particular game right now, I would give it an 8.5 out of 10. Okay. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with the game right now, having beaten it a few weeks back, but still having a pretty lot darn, of collectibles. To pretty get. darn good, but not quite. Yeah, not quite perfect. I, I, would, I would say if I was to name my top... Kingdom Hearts game right now, I still think it's probably Kingdom Hearts 2. Okay. At one time, I thought Birth by Sleep might be might have taken, but I think that's because when I played Birth by Sleep, I had played a lot of 2. And after my most recent playthrough, I was like, man, 2 is such a great all-around package. From story to gameplay to... Everything just was everything. It was It's a thoroughly impressive game. I think it might still be the best in the series. This one, like I said, I think is definitely top 3, at the very least top 4 or 5. But stay tuned. All right. Anyway, hope that's a that's a big enough picture for you. I, I, that, that works for me. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you enjoy it as well, audience, dear listener. Dear listener, thank you for listening to uh, Derailed Trains of Thoughts, where we talk about all manner of storytelling from theater to podcast to video games. Yes. <laughs> it's how we roll. It is how we roll. So anyways, Tim, I think they're going to have some sort of dinner party here, and maybe we'll just hang around, but we should oh. probably... Probably dress up a little bit Dress more. up a little bit, get rid of the electronics. Get rid of the plaid. Yep. 
Yeah, probably. I have to put on my cummerbund. (laughs) But if people want to listen to more of our podcast, they can find us at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We're not very active, unfortunately, but you follow us. (laughs) And uh, you never know what might pop up. Exactly. All right. uh, For my soundtrack, I had decided to go with a live performance because one of the great things about theater is that it's live and then it's is there and gone again you know or you can tape it but still just one version of other versions um and i had to go back to i remember this song that original composition by maze dude called ghost circus uh in reading the details about it it was actually once performed in a play he used it and um he saw people waltzing to it and whatever so this is a uh ensemble piece that he had he wrote composed and recorded in this case uh go circus i hope you enjoy i i've i've always kind of enjoyed it cool stuff all right tim i'm gonna go see if i can get a tailor or something (laughs) all right let's bow out yes thanks for listening this is tim this has been nick bye-bye Thank you.